prophecy against Gog. Chapter 38. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, set your face against Gog at the land of Magog. The chief priest of Meshech and Tubal prophesy against him and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against you, O Gog, chief prince of Meshech and Tubal. I will turn you around, put hooks in your jaws and bring you out with your whole army, your horses, your horsemen fully armed and a great horde with large and small shields, all of them brandishing their swords. Persia, Cush and Put will be put with them, all with shields and helmets. Also Gomer with all its troops and Beth Togaramah from the far north with all its troops, the many nations with you. Get ready, be prepared, you and all the hordes gathered about you and take command of them. After many days, you will be called to arms. In future years, you will invade a land that has recovered from war, whose people were gathered from many nations to the mountains of Israel, which had long been desolate. They had been brought out from the nations, and now all of them live in safety. You and all your troops and the many nations with you will go up, advancing like a storm. You will be like a cloud covering the land. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. On that day, thoughts will come into your mind and you will devise an evil scheme. You will say, I will invade a land of unwalled villages. I will attack a peaceful and unsuspecting people, all of them living without walls and without gates and bars. I will plunder and loot and turn my hand against the resettled ruins and the people gathered from the nations, rich in livestock and goods, living at the centre of the land. Sheba and Dedan and the merchants of Tarshish and all her villages will say to you, have you come to plunder? Have you gathered your hordes to loot, to carry off silver and gold, to take away livestock and goods, and to seize much plunder? Therefore, son of man, prophesy and say to Gog, this is what the sovereign Lord says. In that day, when my people Israel are living in safety, will you not take notice of it? You will come from your place in the far north, you and many nations with you, all of them riding on horses, a great horde, a mighty army. You will advance against my people Israel like a cloud that covers the land. In days to come, O Gog, I will bring you against my land, so that the nations may know me when I show myself holy through you before their eyes. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. Are you not the one I spoke of in former days by my servants, the prophets of Israel? At that time, they prophesied for years that I would bring you against them. This is what will happen in that day. When Gog attacks the land of Israel, my hot anger will be aroused, declares the Sovereign Lord. In my zeal and fiery wrath, I declare that at that time, there shall be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. The fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the beasts of the field, every creature that moves along the ground, and all the people on the face of the earth will tremble at my presence. The mountains will be overturned, the cliffs will crumble and every wall will fall to the ground. I will summon a sword against Gog, 
on all my mountains, declares the sovereign Lord. Every man's sword will be against his brother. I will execute judgment upon him with plague and bloodshed. I will pour torrents of rain, hailstones, and bring sulfur on him and on his troops and on the many nations with him. And so I will show my greatness and my holiness, and I will make myself known in the sight of many nations. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Son of man, prophesy against Gog and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against you, O Gog, chief prince of Meshech and Shubal. I will turn you around and drag you along. I will bring you from the far north and send you against the mountains of Israel. Then I will strike your bow from your left hand and make your arrows drop from your right hand. On the mountains of Israel you will fall, you and all your troops and the nations with you. I will give you as food to all kinds of carrion birds and to the wild animals. You will fall in the open field, for I have spoken, declares the Sovereign Lord. I will send fire on Magog and on those who live in safety in the coastlands, and they will know that I am the Lord. I will make known my holy name among my people Israel. I will no longer let my holy name be profaned, and the nations will know that I, the Lord, am the Holy One in Israel. It is coming. It will surely take place, declares the Sovereign Lord. This is the day I have spoken of. Then those who live in the towns of Israel will go out and use the weapons for fuel and burn them up. The small and the large shields the bows and the arrows, the war clubs and the spears. For seven years they will use them for fuel. They will not need to gather wood from the fields or cut it from the forests because they will use the weapons for fuel and they will plunder those who plundered them and loot those who looted them, declares the Sovereign Lord. On that day I will give Gog a burial place in Israel in the valley of those who travel east toward the sea. It will block the ways of travelers because Gog and all his hordes will be buried there. So it will be called the Valley of Ham and Gog. For seven months, the house of Israel will be burying them in order to cleanse the land. All the people of the land will bury them. And the day I am glorified will be a memorable day for them, declares the Sovereign Lord. Men will regularly will be regularly employed to cleanse the land. Some will go throughout the land, and in addition to them, others will bury those that remain on the ground. At the end of the seven months, they will begin their search. As they go through the land, and one of them sees a human bone, he will set a marker beside it until the grave diggers have buried it in the valley of Hamangog. Also, a town called Hamanah will be there. And so they will cleanse the land. Son of man, this is what the Lord, the sovereign Lord says. Call out to every kind of bird and all the wild animals. Assemble and come together from all around to the sacrifice I am preparing for you. The great sacrifice on the mountains of Israel. There you will eat flesh and drink blood. You will eat the flesh of mighty men and drink the blood of the princes of the earth, as if they were rams and lambs, 
goats and bulls, all of them fattened animals from Bashan. At the sacrifice I am preparing for you, you will eat fat till you are glutted and drink blood till you are drunk. At my table you will eat your fill of horses and riders, mighty men and soldiers of every kind, declares the Sovereign Lord. I will display my glory among the nations, and all the nations will see the punishment I inflict and the hand I lay upon them. From that day forward, the house of Israel will know that I am the Lord their God, and the nations will know that the people of Israel went into exile for their sin because they were unfaithful to me. So I hid my face from them and handed them over to their enemies, and they all fell by the sword. I dealt with them according to their uncleanness and their offences, and I hid my face from them. Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, I will now bring Jacob back from captivity and will have compassion on all the people of Israel, and I will be zealous for my holy name. They will forget their shame and all their unfaithfulness they showed towards me when they lived in safety in their land with no one to make them afraid. When I have brought them back from the nations and have gathered them from the countries of their enemies, I will show myself holy through them in the sight of many nations. Then they will know that I am the Lord their God. For though I sent them into exile among the nations, I will gather them to their own land, not leaving any behind. I will no longer hide my face from them, for I will pour out my spirit on the house of Israel, declares the Sovereign Lord. Amen. A very good morning. My name is David. I'm the pastor of the church. Yes, yes. I think I had my hat on back to front. Maybe not. It's been a good week for me in some respects. And uh, I, yeah, I was down at Chester with Joanna Lumley. Is that how you say her name? Aye, Lumley. Uh, she smiled at me and she screwed her nose up and my heart fluttered. And uh, as she was getting on in the Ray Doctorate, and I must admit, I did look at the guys with the flat caps getting their doctorate and I thought, I quite fancy one of us. <laughs> Miranda says, not in your nelly. <laughs> and that's the way weeks go. If I can just put on the normal slide, Alistair. Uh, the Ezekiel slide, please. We're going through this series in the book of Ezekiel. Quite a, a mysterious book, to say the least. And although this week, yeah, it was great to graduate down at Chester University... It has also been a brutal week. And that's the way life is. There's the highs and the lows, and they often happen at the same time. Here are the deadly assaults and places of worship over the last decade. On the 31st of October 2010, militants attack Our Lady of Salvation Catholic Church in Baghdad, killing 58. On the 15th of December 2010, Sunni extremists blow themselves up near a mosque in Iran, killing themselves and six Revolutionary Guard commanders. 
On the 5th of August 2012, six members of the Sikh temple of Wisconsin are fatally shot by a white supremacist. On the 18th of November 2014, two Palestinians killed four Jewish worshippers and a police officer in an attack in a Jerusalem synagogue. On the 30th of January 2015, suicide bombings at a Shiite mosque in Pakistan killed 71. On the 20th of March 2015, suicide bombers attacked mosques in Yemen's capital, killing 137 people. On the 17th of June 2015, nine black worshippers, including a pastor, are killed by a white supremacist after he prayed with them in Charleston, South Carolina. On the 24th of September 2015, suicide bomber strikes a mosque in Yemen killing 25 worshippers. On the 12th of November, 2016, suicide bomber kills over 50 at a shrine in Pakistan. On the 11th of December, 2016, a suicide bomber strikes inside a Cairo chapel adjacent to St. Mark's Cathedral, the seat of Egyptian's ancient Coptic Orthodox Church. Islamic State claimed the attack which killed at least 25 people. On the 16th of February 2017, a suicide bomber detonates his explosive vest among the worshippers at a shrine in Pakistan, killing 98. On the 9th of April 2017, suicide bombings rock churches in Egyptian cities of Alexandria and Tanda, killing 45 people. On the 15th of June 2017, suicide bomber kills four people at a Shiite mosque in Kabul, among the dead as a leader of Afghanistan's ethnic Hazaras. On the 1st of August 2017, suicide bomber storms into the largest Shiite mosque in Afghanistan's western Herat province, opening fire on worshippers before blowing himself up, killing 90. On the 3rd of August 2017, suicide bombers disguised in burqa robes attack a Shiite mosque in Afghanistan, killing 27 people. And on the 25th of August, 2017, militants storm a Shiite mosque in Kabul, killing 28 worshippers. On the 29th of September that year, suicide bomber blows himself up outside a Shiite mosque in Kabul, killing five. On October the 20th of that year, a suicide bomber kills 31 at a Shiite mosque in Kabul. On the 5th of November 2017, white supremacist opens fire at the First Baptist Church of Sutherland Springs in Texas, killing 26. On the 24th of November 2017, militants kill 311 worshippers in a mosque attack in North Sinai. On the 17th of December 2017, Islamic State attack on a church in Pakistan city of Quetta kills 16 people. On the 27th of October 2018, gunmen enter Tree of Life Congregation Synagogue in Pittsburgh and opens fire, killing 11. On the 27th of January this year, suicide attackers detonate bombs during a mass in the Roman Catholic Cathedral in the island of Jolo in the Philippines, killing 23. Three days later, an, attack, an attacker hurls a grenade in a mosque in nearby Zambogia city, killing two. And this week, 49 people are killed in an attack at mosques in the New Zealand city of Christchurch.
Undoubtedly, we live in a horrible world. Our world is broken. And stories like these, which are just stories in places of worship, don't include many other terrible, terrible things that have happened this week. And some people may even describe the days in which we're living in akin to Armageddon. We must be coming to the end of days when we read and we consider such atrocity and such heartbreak that surrounds us. Shall we pray? Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayers. And we can't begin to name names, but we call on you, Almighty God, who's slow to anger and rich in love, to comfort those who are broken, who are left shattered by such events only in the last 10 years. And the lonely and the forgotten and the victims of so much more hatred and bigotry and brokenness in our world would know comfort from others and Father, you would send the comforter of the Spirit that you would draw all men to yourself for your glory and for your name, that you would vindicate, Lord, and you'd bring justice. Mercy would flow like a fast-flowing river. Use us here, Father, in our small corner. May our light shine. May your church be a people who knows their past, who they are now, and are confident in the future. Forgiven, redeemed, restored. Your hands and your feet so that others may come to know you. Your name would be famous. Your glory and your holiness would be revealed to many in the days to come through us, through your church. By your spirit and in Christ we pray. Amen. I felt it right to give a summary of the book of Ezekiel uh, for those who have not got a clue or who have forgotten because it's quite a difficult book at times. But it opens with a scene in which Ezekiel receives visions of God in verse 1 of chapter 1. In the, my thirteenth year, in the fourth month, in the fifth day, while I was among the exiles by the river Kibar, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. The initial vision is meant, of course, to impress Ezekiel with the glory of the Lord. Verse 8 of that chapter. Like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was a radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell face down and I heard the voice of one speaking. In chapter 3, verse 23, we read, So I got up, Ezekiel got up, and went out to the plain. And there the glory of the Lord was standing, 
like the glory I had seen by the river Kibar, and I fell face down. This is crucial to understand the book of Ezekiel. God is jealous for his glory, and he's not going to allow his people to dishonor his name, period. And as a result of their disobedience, God is one, is going to move his glory from the temple in Jerusalem. And we read this in the uh, 11th chapter, where it says, the glory of the Lord went up from within the city. In other words, it left and stopped above the mountains to the east of it. And not only that, God is going to too, he's going to bring severe discipline upon, uh, among his covenant people in the form of an invasion from Babylon, from the north. And by the end of the first major movement, the king of Babylon has laid siege to Jerusalem and chapter 24, in the ninth year, in the tenth month, on the tenth day, so a specific time, the word of the Lord came to me and said, Son of man, record this date, this very date, because the king of Babylon has laid siege to Jerusalem this very day. But the action is, in Ezekiel in the book, it's temporarily suspended in chapters 25 through to 32. And this is to allow a pronouncement of judgment against Israel's Gentile neighbors, against seven city-states. And as the camera turns its focus once again uh, back to Israel in chapter 33, it is apparent that Jerusalem and the temple have been destroyed. It seems that Yahweh has been defeated. And a report is given in chapter 33 and verse 31. In the twelfth year of our exile, in the tenth month, on the fifth day, so a specific time, a man who had escaped from Jerusalem came to me and said, the city has fallen. And with the city and temple destroyed, Israel's, their hopes and their aspirations are seemingly dashed to the ground. Consequently, consequently from this point onwards and, and for the remainder of the book, so chapters 33 through 48, we're meant to see that all is not lost. God still has a plan for our future, a plan for Israel's future. God will gather his people and restore him, 33 to 39. And he will eventually raise up a new temple to replace the one destroyed by the Babylonians, chapters 40 to 48. And in this new temple, God will reinstate his glory in the midst of his people. We read in 43, 1 to 5. Then the man brought me to the gate facing east, and I saw the glory of the God of Israel coming from the east. His voice was like the roar of rushing waters, and the land was radiant with his glory. The vision I saw was like the vision I had seen when he came to destroy the city, and like the vision I had seen by the river Kibar, and I fell face down. The glory of the Lord entered the temple through the gate facing east. And then the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner courts, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. 
And as a result of this judgment, the, the destruction of Jerusalem followed by the exile, and the restoration of the nation, God will once again bring glory and honor to his name so that he will be exalted. That's a very broad brushstroke summary of the book of Ezekiel. And here in chapters 38 to 39, which if I'm honest, I put all in paper this morning from seven o'clock onwards, having toiled with it all week is where we're going to go now. Every single person that I would read would somewhere and quite close to the beginning start their commentary by saying chapters 38 and 39 are among the most mysterious and difficult chapters of Ezekiel or the whole of Scripture to understand or interpret. So here you go in 20 minutes. <laughs> Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayers. In 1943, Thomas J. Watson, who was a chairman of IBM, is, reportedly, uh, is reported to have said, I think there is a world market for about five computers. In 1962, before he turned down the chance to record the Fab Four, Dick Rowe of Decker Records reportedly said to Brian Epstein, the manager of the Beatles, guitar groups are on their way out, Mr. Epstein. And picture this, a fortune teller gazing into a crystal ball and says to a frog just beyond the ball, you're going to meet a beautiful young woman. And from the moment she sets eyes on you, she will have an insatiable desire to know all about you. She will be compelled to get close to you and you will fascinate her. And the frog has said, where am I to meet such a woman? At a singles club? And the fortune teller says, no, at a biology class. <laughs> I thought that was good. <laughs> In other words, what does tomorrow hold for us? What does Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39 hold for us? In some respects, we've got a good idea. I love the Dave Crowder band song. It's called We Win. And it's a very rocky tune. If I had time and I'd remembered that I've set it up and blasted your hearing aids. But it basically goes like, imagine that God's people going round Jericho and to go round that a certain amount of times and then blow trumpets and shout for the glory of the Lord. And Dave Crowd, the band, are singing, shout louder, louder till the walls come down. Keeps repeating that. Rocky guitar, shout louder, louder till the walls come down, till the walls come down. And then the chorus goes like this. And it's shouting to the people in Jericho. Because we've already won and you don't have a chance. We've already won so you don't have a chance. We know our future. Our future is sealed. In Christ, we have been bought at a price, a costly price. And by the Spirit, we cry out, Abba, Father. We have a new name and we will be clothed, precious and beautiful as the bride of Christ, presented to him. You and I who have acknowledged Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, who would consider ourselves to be born again, born of the Spirit. We say to the world in all of this tragedy and to the evil one and the powers and principalities that would stand against Christ and his church, 
but we've already won, so you don't have a chance. You will do this to me, that to me. You will take even my very last breath, but I've been bought at a price, and it is sealed. So we have a good idea, but knowing the exact specifics is incredibly tricky. And this is the question I certainly have chewed over far too much this week as I approached Ezekiel uh, 38 and 39. Ezekiel here describes at a time after Israel has been peacefully settled in the promised land. He pictures an invasive army, a vast, a great army. Uh, Gog, who's the prince of Magog, will lead a huge alliance of armies against unsuspected Israel, God's people, living peacefully in their own land. But God will act and he will come against God's, uh, the enemies of God's people. And there will be earthquake, sword, plague, blood, rainstorm, hail, and burning sulfur. God, in other words, when he comes to defend his people, will not hold back. And he will bring those who stand against him and his ways and stand and would try and rob God of his glory. He will completely and utterly defeat such evil and anything that stands against him. That's chapter 38. Chapter 39, we find that Israel's enemies will all die and become food for the birds and foods for the animals. Their weapons will be used for seven years as fuel. Their bodies will take seven years for the animals and the birds to eat them for they'll be buried and all of that. And God's people will come to a new acceptance of their responsibility for the exile. They will come to repentance once again. Finally, and actually the weapons of war are not used for something else, are not stored as what would often happen when an enemy is plundered. They will be destroyed forever, gone, burnt up, never to be used again, turned into weapons to cultivate the land for use for the people. So as I am trying to bring some sort of understanding to these two chapters. I've summarized it with these two bullet points up here. Generally speaking, and there is lots of different wee nuances in each of them, but generally speaking, there are two ways of interpreting these chapters. The first way is to see it as a prophetic things to come. The final war, Armageddon, after the second coming of Christ and the rapture of the church to glory. And that is a massive area of study. And secondly, there is a prophetic parable of what we are reading here. It's symbolism, symbolizing the repeated assault against the church, but showing the end of all evil. And that's a little bit more easy to unpack. But first of all, the prophetic things to come. Students of prophecy, and there are such people, well-educated, clever, godly men and women of God, but students of prophecy, 
they see alarming parallels between the development in the Middle East and the prophecies here in Ezekiel 38 and 39, in which God had Ezekiel prophesy of a specific time in history in the end of days when a coalition of nations, and as you look at them, the mostly Muslim nations, armed and led definitely by Iran, possibly by Russia, they would attempt to destroy Israel in a surprise attack. There's no walls, no gates, no locks. They're in the land peacefully, and they have bounty. And there are many understandings of how this will play out. However, however here's a, a rough sketch of these, and I've just not noted some of these down here. People mentioned in Ezekiel 38 are descendants of uh, Japheth and Ham, who are Noah's sons, and you can see that, that genealogy in, in Genesis 10, 27. And it's indicating attack against Israel, and it will come from the people of the far north. That's where they're getting this idea, it's got to be Russia. Because if you go for Israel and you go north, and you go far north, there's nothing further north than Russia. And they'll come from Europe, and people will identify Germany, and they'll have a mixed group, uh, be a mixed alliance of people from East Africa, from, Af from the East, from Africa, and some from Europe, and they will come and be motivated to come and plunder the land of Israel, and plunder it of all its wealth and all its uh, prosperity. God's purpose in permitting such an attack, these students of prophecy, um, God's uh, purposes are, are this, the threefold. One, to show his favor to the regathered nation of Israel. Two, to open the eyes to all of his mighty power. And three, to dissolve the present order in, uh, in favor of his. In other words, God's glory will be seen, his people will repent, and the kingdom of God fully will come forever and ever. Amen. The end of days. In verses 1 to 7, they would say this represents the characters of the great battle, all the nations gathered against them. In verse 9 to 13 describes this invasion uh, of Israel with the intent to capture the wealth and disrupt their sense of security. From 14 to 17 in that day, the nations will think that Israel's easy prey and they'll come to plunder and destroy. In verses 18 to 23, you see this whole section where God's anger is revealed, not to his people, but to those who would come against his people. And that's chapter 38 and 39 from verses 1 to 8 describes the outcome of the battle. And it describes God's favor once again, his covenant favor to his people Israel. Verse 7 informs us that the nation of Israel will recognize their God as their deliverer and that all the nations of the world will come to recognize the one true God. Not some plethora or some chimera, some, try to use a polite word, but some mixture of a God. We all worship the, the same God. We worship Him in different words and languages and names and understandings. No, that they will come to recognize there is only one true and loving God. In chapter to 39, 9 to 10, 
depicts that man's weapons of war will be destroyed forever. The next verses go on to detail how everything is cleansed in, uh, of, in this battle. And as chapter 39 comes to a conclusion, it depicts the total destruction of warfare. We see this recurrent theme where God delivers the nation of Israel and, and, and delivers from those who would stand against. That's why it's so easy at times to read it and feel as if you're going back in yourself and, and you thought you dealt with that in the normal piece of our narration and you're confused. God is saying time and time again, I will come and do this. I will redeem, I will restore my people, seek repentance. It will be forever and ever and ever. And then nearer the end, 23 to 24, takes us back into time when Israel was rejected by God and his favored, as his favored people. And they were allowed to languish at the hands of their enemies due to their sins and their unfaithfulness as a people. And finally at the end, the result of that great battle is revealed. Israel is fully gathered as a nation. They've received God's punishment for their sins and they will sin no more. They'll recognize and worship God. Israel will become the blesser nation to all and they will bring the peoples of the earth back into harmony with God. That's me really being very quick. And as I have been saying those things, students of prophecy wouldn't believe what I was saying was symbolic. They would say these things will specifically happen. When it speaks of Israel, it is not speaking of all of us as the new Israel. They would say that these are promises specifically to Abraham and his descendants, the promises he gave to Jacob and to David. God is remembering these promises and fulfilling them to the ethnic nation of Israel. Yes, there are promises to us, those who are part of the new covenant in Christ, all of us Gentiles, I believe one or two people in here from a Jewish background, but on the whole Gentiles, yes, those promises God will bring about. But students of prophecies who look at this literally would say, we need to be aware of the signs of the times. We need to be aware of Iran and Russia and Turkey and Germany and Lebanon. Names of uh, associated with uh, in Genesis, was it chapter 10? And you can see how that can be just quite complicated and difficult. I've been intrigued by this. I have a renewed appreciation that God has not forgotten Israel. I fully understand the secular nation of Israel as a secular nation. But I've got dear friends who would call themselves Messianic Jews, ethnic Jewish people, who look at such promises and don't see them as just a general symbolic promise, but specifically to them as descendants of that land. And then there is another way of looking at it, and that's to see what we have read here as a prophetic parable. 
John Mackay, in his commentary, says this, that Ezekiel 30 and 39 are word pictures of spiritual truth regarding the security of the people of God to whom these chapters extend the guarantee of God's protection. In other words, these chapters are not to be read historically, literally, in relation to the nation of Israel, but symbolically to all God's people, to you and to I. This, for whatever reason, is where Ezekiel goes into a prophetic parable. It's a parable to all God's people under Christ who are in the new covenant bought by the blood. It's a parable regarding the last days as we read in Revelation uh, chapter uh, 19 and verse 17. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come, gather together for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals and mighty men, of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slaves, small and great. And then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider and the horse and his army. But the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. And with these signs, he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur, and the rest of them were killed with a sword that came out of the mouth of the rider and the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. The consumption of God's people will come. There will be a final victory. We know what's going to happen. We've already won and you don't have a chance, powers and principalities. God is the Lord of history and he will keep his covenant to all those who call in the name of Jesus and who are saved. Two ways of reading some very complicated and, and, and weird and mystical words that are the word of the Lord. And so what? Broadly speaking, God is the master of human history. Whether you go for this literally or you go for it as, as a, um, a, a parable, God is still the master of history. We know roughly what was going to happen, but we don't know specifically. And more precisely, God's purposes and his mastery of history is to make his holiness known to all the nations. And I will show my greatness and my holiness and I will make myself known in the sight of many nations. Then they will know that I am the Lord. And these are other verses that say the same thing. So I would say to all of us, because we all have difficult things, hold on. Don't give up. Hold on when you, are, you don't know if you're going to be employed. Hold on. You don't know if people are saying malicious things about you to bring you down and you don't know what's going to be the consequences. Hold on if you have been bereaved. Hold on if you have been abandoned. Hold on if you're holding by a thread and you feel that your light is just flickering because of the experiences of life and the things you read and you're full of doubt and fear. Lord, help me in my unbelief and hold on. Because we say to the powers and principalities and all that would stand against God and his plans, we've already won so you don't have a chance. Hold on. 
and between God's victory against his enemies and, and the vast majority of what we've read and the relief and the security that his people will enjoy at the tail end of chapter 39 lies these two encouragements that I can see. And the first one is that Jesus really will make a separation at the end. Those who are for him and those who are against him. We read that in the, par the, the parable of the, the sheep and the goats. And we read in Revelation 27, nothing impure will ever enter it. That's the city of God. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Jesus will come to judge the living and the dead. We know that. We don't know when. We don't know exactly what the historical things are going to be happening around about us. There'll be signs and there'll be hints, but we don't know specifically. But we know. So hold on. It will happen. And we will see victory of what we're going through. And God will bring us home. Ezekiel 39, 27 reads, and when I have brought them back from the nations and I have gathered them from the countries of their enemies, I will provide, I will be proved holy through them in the sight of many nations. What will it be like? John, in his first letter in chapter 3, describes it in this way. Dear friends, now we are children of God. And what will we be, sorry, and what we will be has not yet been known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. This is our blessing, to be like Jesus. Now, the only way you can be like Jesus is to give your life to Jesus to submit to Jesus, to his ways. Do I understand everything in here? No. But it's scriptures. And I am not the Lord of scripture to say what is for today and what is not for today. It's the word of the Lord. And so we submit to the Lord, to his word and to the spirit. And what he's begun, he will bring to completion. So we say to the powers and principalities or any of the situations that stand against us, we've already won, so you don't have a chance. So hold on. For although we are a million miles away from deserving such a reward, we would surely accept, every single one of us would surely accept a warm welcome into glory. Well done, good and faithful servant. And if God can do that for us, we would really know that he is the Lord. So trust in the Lord with all your heart. In the days ahead, lean not in your own understanding. In all of your ways, all of your ways, acknowledge him. And he will make straight your paths. 
Shall we pray together? <coughs> Dear Father, thank you that we don't know all. We know that Jesus is alive. We know that Jesus is at your right hand in glory, that he will come again to judge the living and the dead. Help us to rest in that and give us more wisdom as we seek you. May we find you when we seek you with all of our heart, when we ponder over such words. May the words of Scripture come alive by your Spirit. May we wrestle and chew over, ruminate, and may it bring life to our very lives and bones. And may your name, your holiness, your glory be revealed in us as we leave here in our families, in our relationships with one another. Help us to forgive and be forgiven. And may all of this be for your praise. In the name of Jesus we ask, amen.